In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom, and I'm Nathan Seelove. We are super excited to be back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess Nathan was here last week, and I was here the week before that. But we're back. Excited to be back together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I haven't. I have not seen Michael in in two weeks. Yeah. Same we just for Nathan. We just kind of we just kind of dropped off the face of the earth to each other. Yeah, like ships passing in the night. Yeah, it's like it's like when we're not recording, we kind of go into stasis, and then <laughs> when it's time to record again, we're, we're we come out of stasis and we exist again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done nothing since last time I saw you. I've just been waiting to record, just sitting in my desk chair. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a super exciting episode for you tonight. Um, we are going to talk about something that we teased last week and something that is impossible to not talk about tonight, which is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. We'll also be talking about uh, Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court. And we'll wrap up the show by uh, discussing Biden's State of the Union address. Yes, which, you know, I, I was I was talking to Jess before the State of the Union address, and I was just sitting there thinking, I... I I feel like it's going to physically, I know that he's going to say at some point in the speech, the state of our union is strong, but when he does say that it's going to physically hurt me (laughs) (laughs) because it really does not feel that way right now. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. But, uh, do you know, we'll get, we'll get there. We'll talk about it. (laughs) Do you know what is strong, Michael? What Nathan? The COVID numbers. I of think. course. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. I'm back to read them. I'm so excited. Yeah. Because, because <laughs> I suck at reading them. I did. I had to do so much <laughs> no, editing. You, you did a great job. I had to do so much editing though. Oh, really? Yeah. Cause it's me and I'm dyslexic and I'm so bad at reading numbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. That's tough. Well, I don't envy you, but I'll try to do it in one shot. No, this time. <laughs> yeah. You're so you, in you've the world, always been a one take wonder. Well, now I'm going to mess up. <laughs> so in the world, we've hit 440 million cases, which is up from 430 million a week ago. So that's 10 million new cases in a week, or about 1.4 million new cases per day, which is about half of where it was two weeks ago, uh, which, is, which is pretty amazing and kind of the theme for the COVID numbers today overall. So in terms of death, we've hit 5.99 million deaths, which is up from 5.94 million uh, last week. So that's 50,000 new deaths in a week, or about 7,000 deaths per day. Um, in terms of vaccination, worldwide, we've hit 64.4% of the population with at least one dose, which is up from 63.6% two weeks ago. So on average, over the last two weeks, we've had a point about a 0.4% increase per week. Um, in terms of cases in the US, we've hit 80.7 million which is up from 80.4 million last week, which is 300,000 new cases in a week or about 42,000 new cases per day. Now to anchor that, two weeks ago, 
we were at 142,000 new cases per day. So a huge improvement there as our daily new cases have neared the lowest point since the start of the pandemic. In terms of death, we've hit 978,000 deaths, which is up from 969,000 last week. So 9,000 new deaths in a week, or about 1,200 deaths per day. Um, obviously, that's still quite high for, you know, for people that are, you know, think of this as like a common cold already. Um, but two weeks ago, it was more than double that. Um, so daily deaths aren't quite as low relative to other times in the pandemic um, as, say, cases, but um, they are significantly lower than they were a couple of weeks ago and improving, continuing to improve. In terms of vaccination in the U.S., we have 76% uh, with one dose, 65% with two doses, and 28% with a booster. This might be one of the more encouraging COVID numbers that we've seen so far. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm trying not to let myself hope again because <laughs> yeah. every every time it feels like, oh, this is this is ending. We're we're finally getting out of this. Uh, another variant comes out of nowhere and slaps us in the face. Yeah. That's so I'm fair. trying not to be hopeful. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I'm also like trying not to be anchored to like the worst times in the pandemic. True. Um, True. Because like it's easy to be like, man, things are heading in the right direction, and to feel like that means that things are solved. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, like, you know, twelve hundred deaths per day is still almost four hundred and forty thousand deaths per year. Yeah. Which means that, like it's still the third leading cause of death in the U S on an annual basis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like, it's not like <laughs> even, even today where we're in a vastly improved position where it's, we're not like out of the woods and it's so easy to be like, Oh my God, like we're no longer totally drowning. I guess that doesn't even mean we need to paddle towards shore. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my yeah. university is actually lifting its mask mandate soon, which there mm. I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this because the way that they're doing it is kind of a gradual lead out. So they're going to, they're going to lift the mask mandate in some places, see how that affects the numbers, uh, make it a little bit less strict, see how that mm. affects the numbers. So I think that's probably a good policy, but there is still a little bit of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You I know what that. also I mean, you're, you're basically part of a live experiment at that point. Yeah. You know? Do you, do you know what also, gives me a little bit of anxiety michael hmm war yep Ugh. <laughs> what is it good for <laughs> absolutely nothing sing it again y'all yeah uh, all right so so, so war there's a is war. our first topic there's a there's a war and there's it's a war it's it's happening it it happened as we, we teased a few weeks ago with our episode world war three question mark now, well, I mean, it's, it's still a war. it's still a question mark <laughs> as to whether it's going to be a it's world still a question war, mark. but it's definitely a yep. war. War, like, <laughs> yeah, and it is. God, man, I, okay. Before we get into Russia, Ukraine, there's one thing that I do think we should take just a minute to address, and that is the fact that there have been an unfortunate number of people 
not just on the right, but also on the left, that have been apologists for Vladimir Putin. And there's a point that they're making that I want to address, and I also want to combat. So there are people on the left that are view themselves as so anti-imperialist that they view that any criticisms of Vladimir Putin is towing the line of the CIA and coming full circle and becoming imperialist. And one mm. of the arguments that they're pointing out is the fact that as we criticize the, 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 the as we criticize Russia for invading Ukraine, illegally a sovereign illegally invading a sovereign country we are simultaneously arming saudi arabia as they are attacking a sovereign country yemen we are arming them as they are setting up a blockade around yemen and starving the country we are arming them while almost 20 million people are at risk of dying because of famine and what I will say to that is that is absolutely true. But if your solution to that is excuse what Russia is doing. Well, it's totally backwards. They're arguing that their their actual argument is that it's hypocritical to criticize Ukraine while we're supporting Saudi Arabia. Uh, but the solution is not support Putin. The solution yeah. is stop supporting <laughs> exactly. Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Yeah. So if you were anti-imperialist, and you are rightfully bringing up the fact that we're that the United States government is being hypocritical when when they're condemning Russia. The solution to that is don't condemn Russia. The solution to that is stop fucking supporting Saudi Arabia. Sanction the hell out of Saudi Arabia for committing atrocities in yeah. Yemen. That's the solution. Yeah. So I yeah, just want to get like, that out of the way. Yeah. Better somewhere than nowhere. Better late than never. Honestly. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked about Yemen plenty. So you can you can listen to our episode about that. The focus here is going to be Russia. And yeah. Russia is committing a slew of war crimes. They're yep. invading a sovereign country that did not attack them or threaten them. Mm -hmm. And they're 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 slaughtering civilians. They're you know they're spreading authoritarianism, and every single pretense they've given is laughably bullshit. It's laughably false. Yeah, yeah. Let's. I'd love if we could start by doing a little bit of a timeline because you know, I I had the luxury of stepping away from this as it was unfolding because. I was highly distracted intentionally. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and so for anybody that's like, not like fully up to date on this, I think we should, I think a lot has happened in a very short amount of time. Yeah. So I'd love if we could talk through, um, kind of, you know, how things have kind of unfolded. So starting, uh, on around February 21st, um, Putin, uh, recognized two independent states, well, two states that claim to be independent in uh, Ukraine, uh, Luhansk and Donsk, um, and put Russian troops there as, quote, peacekeepers. Um, you can already see the formation of his 
and like in following the tradition of claiming that putting Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine is actually just helping to support Ukrainians, um, which is a th- which is a thread, a justification that he's been making um, throughout this period, as he's called uh, like the Ukrainian government, like Nazis and 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 a bunch of and fascists and a bunch of other things to try to justify uh, the Russian presence there. Um, on February 22nd, the next day, the Russian parliament authorized Putin to use military force outside of Russia. Um, at the same time, um, the U.S. moved military assets from Germany to, into uh, Baltic states. Um, two days later, on the 24th, Russia had launched a full-scale assault on Ukraine. Um, and Zelensky had ordered the general mobilization um, of the like the Ukrainian military calling on Ukrainians to be ready to defend uh, the country as Russia uh, launched their assault. Um, one day later on the 25th, the Russian forces pressed towards Kiev, the capital. Um, and on like literally the first day of this invasion, 50,000 people fled the country um, uh, as they, as they started to invade. Um, Two days later, uh, as part of a response, uh, the European uh, Commission chief, Ursula von der Leyen, um, announced that Russian aircraft will be banned from uh, EU airspace. Um, A few days later, in fact, just last night, the U.S. actually followed suit, uh, banning Russian aircraft from U.S. airspace. Um, At the same time, Russian state-owned media... uh, was banned from EU airwaves as well as um, like Russian state internet sites. At the same time, um, Russian troops continued to uh, press towards uh, Kiev, Kharkiv, and Kherson, um, three large Ukrainian cities. Um, What they did not expect as they pushed towards these cities was a a large... um, robust and organized Ukrainian defense. Um, You know, at that time, uh, as they were pushing in, um, the Ukrainian defense military had estimated that the Russians had lost 4,500 men, uh, 150 tanks, 700 armed, uh, armored personnel carriers, and seven fighter jets and 26 helicopters. Um, as part of this assault, which in in comparison, I think right now the estimate is at, I think, 1,500 Ukrainian casualties. So yeah, the Russians are getting fucked up. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and outside of Kharkiv, Ukrainians had kept the Russians at bay for three days outside, the, outside of the city, um, including like pushing them to retreat on several occasions. Yeah. And can we talk about Zelensky for a second? Absolutely. Dude's a fucking badass. I mean, yeah, fucking former like Dances with the Stars, like comedian entertainer Zelensky is now like a fucking Ukrainian hero. Like, yeah, like um, refused multiple offers to get out of the country with his family. They they Um, offered they offered him to get out and he he said something like i don't need an evacuation i need more ammunition like that that's the type of shit that they're God gonna damn. put in history books 
Yeah. I mean, Fucking he's Rambo, man. He's he's like the Russians keep saying, "Oh, well, he's he's fled all these reports of him not being uh, of him uh, staying in Ukraine. It's bullshit." And so in response, he like he posted a fucking video of him with like other other people in his government in in Kiev just being like, "Hey, bitches, we're here." <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Jesus, and imagine that, that. That is some that is some like Middle Ages leadership. Yeah. Like that's, and that's the thing. You don't see that because yeah. like he would he's like one of their main targets. Their whole goal is to overthrow the democratically elected government and like try these people, if not kill them in war. You know, yeah. like they, they they're trying to pretend like there are crimes going on in Ukraine that Russia is trying to. And so they'll set up a puppet court to try to like condemn these people. It's like it's would be a very scary time to be. Zelensky, even if there wasn't, even if he wasn't like actively fighting. Yeah. Um, and what's hilarious is that one of the, one of the uh, pretenses that Putin made for the invasion was to denazify Ukraine. Yeah. Zelensky's Jewish and he is the descendant of a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. And in fact, apparently during the bombing, Russia actually bombed one of Ukraine's Holocaust museums, mm. a site where like 30,000 Jews had died. Jesus. How's that denazification going, bro? Yeah. I mean, it turns out the Nazis were coming from inside the Russian government. I mean, no surprise there. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's just so laughable what the Russians yeah. have been doing. And, and, and to Michael's point, the Russians are getting their asses kicked. I mean, yeah. look, the Russians are vastly superior in terms, in of, terms their, of military, in terms might. of military yeah. might, in terms of hardware, in terms of numbers. But the Ukrainians are holding their own. I'm not necessarily saying that I think they're gonna that they're gonna win this. I I think that that's still an incredibly long shot. But they're certainly holding their own, and Russia is. I mean it. This is embarrassing for them. Like yeah. there, there are videos of of Russian tanks just like running out of gas on the road. There are videos of uh, Russian planes being shot down. There's there's a video of these these Ukrainians that were on some ship, and there is this there is this Russian general or mm -hmm. the, this the, this Russian force that was calling for them to surrender on the radio, and they just responded by being like. They literally just said, go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, um, yeah. they're, they're motivated. They're motivated and they have something to fight for. That's the issue with the Russians. They don't really have the morale because they don't really have a reason to be fighting. Yeah, apparently morale has been very low um, for the Russian forces. And, and to your point, like, it seems like they're getting, in many ways, humiliated despite superior might. Yeah. Which to me, thinking about the bully that Putin is, to me, that makes me very nervous. Yeah. Because um, like, so on the 27th, the same day we were talking about before, Russia ordered its nuclear forces on alert. Yeah. Um, and so experts have said they don't think that means that they're going to, you know, actually launch a nuclear strike on the West or into Ukraine. Um, um, but, you know, the fact that the alert 
occurred um, with a ma- major conflict with NATO going on, it just means that like the risk is just way higher that like people would even be potentially at like the trigger of these things. And Russia has nearly 6,000 nuclear warheads um, at its disposal. Well, one thing that I'm almost wondering is if there might be a little bit of a madman paradox happening here. So, so basically Mm -hmm. the idea behind that is there will be some leaders that portray themselves as a madman, which Hmm. almost leads to more stability because of the way people treat them. So like, sure with kid gloves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if Putin is out here pretending like, you know, Ooh, I'm a, I'm a big madman. All I need to do is press this button and kaboom goes the world and I'm crazy enough to do it. Then the world's going to treat him like, Holy shit. He, you know, he's, like we got to be careful here. And then paradoxically yeah, like, that yeah. almost creates more stability. I think that that was an idea that that was a, that was a term that Nixon coined, uh, I believe during mm. the cold war. Um, interesting. That could potentially be what he's going for here. Yeah. But of course he also could just be a total madman and not have any regard for the existence of humanity. That is the challenge underlying the paradox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, and also, like, yeah, like, I mean, even if we're not talking about, like, nuclear strikes on the West or something like that, like, you know, that doesn't bar them in a smaller region. It doesn't, you know, to be fair, like, it would be such a stupid move for Putin to try to continue into, like, NATO allies or, like, bomb yeah. a NATO ally. That's, like, that. that's not playing chess. That's yeah. flipping over the board. I mean, um, a stray bullet clips the soil of a NATO country and we go in there and we fuck up Putin like that. that That's what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I think like the opposition to Russian aggression here has been incredibly uniting. Yeah. Um, which has been like not just for the Ukrainian people who have like withstood in these cities like who have undergone days of like siege and bombings in these cities who have had their civilians as well as their military um, killed and targeted. They've had like bombs dropped on uh, like civilian uh, sites, like not just for those people, but I think also for um, like the rest of the world. Yeah. It has been a very uh, powerful kind of uniting force. Yeah. And, the world seems mostly united in opposition to Russia. So Primarily, the the, yeah. the United Nations General Assembly voted in a 141 to 5 um, uh, vote to demand that Russia halt the war. Now, yeah. obviously, uh, obviously, Russia voted against it. Obviously, uh, Belarus <laughs> voted against it. There were 35 abstentions. Mm-hmm. So, interestingly enough, China was one of the abstentions, which makes me a little bit nervous. But at least they weren't completely with yeah. them on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think China is pulling a very China move, which is like, I mean, they're not allies with Russia except in being like antagonistic towards like the United States. 
if that yeah. makes sense. And it, like, yeah. I think China's pulling a very typical move, which is like, you you guys have like have fun over there, do your thing. Don't expect us to help or hurt. <laughs> We're gonna wait till you know there are a bunch of ashes, and then we'll get to sweep up. Yeah. Well, um, my other concern there though is Taiwan. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Yeah. There have been there have been there there was a a a case where apparently they they uh, flew some planes close to Taiwan in kind mm-hmm. of a threatening motion since everybody's focused on Russia, Ukraine right now, that, that could be a little concerning because of, of the things that could potentially lead to world war three, uh, like China trying to invade Taiwan is, Mm -hmm. is up there. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I can't like, I, I haven't decided how I feel about that particular theory yet. Like it's interesting that they actually took some concerted action, like flying planes over them. But like, like I can't imagine I don't I don't know this for sure but I can't imagine the US has pulled out like our navy from the South China Sea and like yeah. we might all be focused on Ukraine and Russia but like I'm sure like not everyone is like you know all professional soldiers are focused on Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. So yeah, but like but overall like hopefully they don't take any inspiration uh from from Russia yeah. on this. I doubt they would though given like the unanimity of um opposition to this like level of aggression yeah um so let's let's talk a bit more about the world's response because biden has made it very clear that we will not be sending troops to fight russia in Mm -hmm. ukraine now what that means is kind of what i alluded to earlier which is he invades one nato country and the full might of nato comes in and you know to to put it in military terms fucks his shit up mm-hmm. um but that doesn't that's mean classified that, so yeah <laughs> that doesn't but that doesn't mean that the world isn't doing anything and yeah. the biggest thing that the rest of the world is doing is they are punishing the hell out of russia financially they are mm-hmm. destroying the russian economy with with sanctions with um with removal from banks, um, yeah. like with boycotts. I mean, mm-hmm. the Russian economy is really feeling the hurt from this. So recently yeah. over the weekend, the United States and Europe announced that they were going to cut off uh, Russia from SWIFT, which is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Finance Telecommunication, basically a, a world bank. And this makes it so that there are a bunch of Russian banks that can no longer trade with the rest of the world. And yeah, it's like the transaction system. So exactly. like, if you can't send money from one back bank to the next, you can't, you know, trade with those banks. So this, I mean, effectively this makes Russian money worthless. Um, so as a result the of, of the world, anyway, yeah, yeah, as a result of all these sanctions, um, and this is all according to the Atlantic, uh, Russian banks, from uh, on the stock listings in London dropped by more than 50%. The ruble, mm-hmm. which is the uh, Russian currency collapsed by 30% in value. Yeah. On Monday. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, to respond to the inflation, the bank had the Russian bank actually had to raise its interest rate to 20%. 
which is oh higher than it's ever to put that in the perspective it's never been even close to that high in the united states mm-hmm. and a lot of this happened basically within within 72 hours of, of, of each other yeah um well it's been it's been like an amazingly i've been so impressed actually by the sanctions like like when i hear sanctions i think of like the limp dick sanctions that we put in proposed on you you know russia after they annexed crimea like yeah maybe that maybe maybe that's not a great characterization like they weren't totally weak but like they were they were livable and as a result like it it wasn't that effective so like it's awesome to see a strategic targeting of sanctions in this case and in some in some ways just like a full court press that seems like it might actually do something like like if we think about what we're doing right so we're targeting um their financial system and their banks preventing them from being able to access money abroad um and interact with like and like get loans from the world stage so we're basically trying to cut off funding for investment in the russian economy which not only is like new investment in their economy itself but also like funding their war right um so we've cut off like their like centrally controlled banks the u.s has cut off um like five more like major financial institutions um they've barred russia from selling sovereign bonds on u.s money markets which is huge right because like a way a government like raises money to to spend money is with bonds um, so cutting off the U.S. market is huge, but so not only have we cut off like the ability for the government to raise money, we're also targeting uh, two really important groups that are necessary for Putin's support in order to continue to wage this war. One is the oligarchs, mm, yes, right? the super wealthy people uh, that are like the private leadership in Russia. Right. We've seized their U.S. held assets. Um, We've announced the creation of a new task force specifically aimed um, at at holding Russian oligarchs account accountable um, and imposing sanctions like the EU has frozen the assets of three hundred and fifty one like Duma members, which is the lower house members, barring barring them from. getting international loans and travel um like and 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 to nathan's point so like not only are we like targeting russia's ability to raise money targeting the wealthy people in russia that will be able to put direct force on putin but by targeting their economy more broadly with financial sanctions with like boycotts and and uh, and things like that we're also putting a lot of pressure on the Russian people in general. Yeah. And all of this is basically aimed at pulling the rug out from under Putin's support yeah. for the war, right? Like basically saying, in what world is it worth it to annex this tiny little country yeah. and give up so much? Yeah. And one thing that I think we should also address is you and I have been critical of sanctions before mm-hmm. when we're talking about other situations. So I think it's also important for us to address 
what makes this different? Yeah. So we've been critical of sanctions on Cuba. We've been critical of sanctions on Afghanistan. So the biggest thing that makes this different is the fact that Cuba and Afghanistan were not in direct conflict with. All right. Yeah. And they aren't in direct conflict with like a, a, another sovereign country. So when we sanction Cuba, when we have an embargo on Cuba, because there's no direct conflict that is, that is currently happening between us, mm. the, the point, the, the point behind it, the point that they state is if we starve the Cuban people, if we if we destabilize the Cuban economy, then hopefully the people are going to become miserable enough to take over the Cuban government. Mm -hmm. But if they weren't miserable enough to begin with, then why would you do that? And yeah. also, um, the Cuban government is then able to use that as basically a, hey, things are terrible in Cuba right now. It's not because of us. It's because of all these fucking sanctions. Yeah, which makes sense when you're sitting on your own island. Yeah, exactly. And you're getting totally fucked over. Yeah. In this specific case, first off, I, I would like to say that the sanctions should try to target the oligarchs more than the Russian people. And I do Absolutely. have concerns about how this will impact the Russian people because yep. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you know, there's a huge difference between the Russian people and the government. Yeah, of course. But sanctions that target the the oligarchs and even to an extent, the ones that affect the Russian people does actually have a clear effect on Putin's legitimacy because it is, it is going to be really hard to argue that the West just did this because they hate us. Yeah. Because clearly it's retaliatory. Clearly it's a consequence. And because of Putin's actions, he has separated himself from the rest of the world economically and it is really hard for anybody to look at that situation in any type of remotely objective way and and come to the conclusion that it's not Putin's fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think I think that makes total sense. I agree that, like, targeting the population of a country with sanctions is like by definition go, comes with collateral damage. Like yeah. the whole point is the collateral damage. Right. Yeah. Um, but to your point, like in, in Cuba, it's like, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do about it? You know, like in many nations where like, it's like not clear what the government should do about it, except, you know, just give in to whatever America, like us policy is in this case. It's like, well, if things are really dis unstable at home, why are we spending all this money on a war? Yeah. You know, why are we sending all our our young people away to die in another country? Like to your point, yeah, it's like when you are obviously the aggressor, you have to make the argument to your people that it's worth the suffering to continue to aggress. And yeah. like that's a really hard argument to make. Yeah. And so we've also kind of created a situation in which there's going to be no good outcome for Putin because yeah. if, even if he does take over Ukraine, he is still going to be isolated from the rest of the world. And the Russian economy is just going to collapse. His best case scenario is to immediately pull out and hope that 
people lift the sanctions on his country. Like that is the best case scenario for him at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course the other, you know, the other scenario would be Ukrainians just beat him back. Now that's, that is unlikely, but it's not without precedent. I mean, history does show us several cases in which larger empires that were aggressors have been beaten back by people that by, by, by larger forces or by smaller forces because they were in their own homeland. They knew their own homeland. They used guerrilla tactics. They had the motivation, which clearly Russia does not have that motivation. So yeah. there's really no world that exists in which Russia comes out on top, even if they do end up winning against Ukraine. They're still fucking themselves. Yeah. So Putin, if you're listening to this, just like head out now, bro. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, like I think to that point, like I don't think there's any world in which Ukraine doesn't get fully invaded by Russia. They just have so much like advantage militarily. That being said, though, like that doesn't end there necessarily. Right. Like at that point, Ukraine, the Ukrainian military enters like insurgent mode. Yeah. You know, rather than open fighting, you're using guerrilla tactics and things like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, until that point, I think, like, the analysis and the situation, I think, point towards Putin punishing them pretty much as much as possible. Yeah. Like, Ukrainians, like, p- making it a painful process for the Russians, as painful as possible. Um but like it's very it's very clear at this point that Putin has no inhibition about yeah. using like truly horrendous horrendous war crime tactics in Ukraine um and and if he gets caught in between a rock and a hard place where it's you know return home with his tail between his legs uh or like unleash like unprecedented levels of uh you know assault i bet he's gonna go with the attack you know with with attacking and if it's like you know lose by casualties or like unload massive artillery massive bombing on these cities and beat ukraine into submission i can't imagine him taking the the casualties first over like you know, preserving the Ukrainian people. So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. Tips for good. Actually, it's tips for good, actually. (laughs) (laughs) The very first hybrid segment between tips for good and good, actually. So Nathan, why do we do tips for good, actually? Well, Michael, we do tips for good, actually, Because don't let them ever fool you or take you by surprise. The dirty Mm. smell of the politician and the man with the greed in his eyes. One big union, that's our plan. And the IWW is your only man. The the flames of discontent will fan from the cause that never dies. Wow. This is a very (laughs) pro-labor tip for good, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so about Nathan, the, it's about the flames our... of discontent. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I can hear it. Hmm. So what's our tip for good actually today? Well, 
so our our tip for good actually so as as the name suggests this is a hybrid which means that first off i'm going to talk about something that's just really good really nice to see and then kind of tack on a little tip for it so the good actually is the fact that thousands and thousands of russian protesters have been protesting their own government in response to the invasion of Ukraine. And the reason why this is so significant is because they don't have free speech the way that we do. Yeah. Like I, I can, I can spend hours and hours talking about how horrific the actions of the U S government are in, in, in reference to, to, to Yemen. I can do that and I'm not going to be thrown in jail. Russians don't have that luxury. And yet thousands of them, thousands of them have taken to the street to protest. And unfortunately, uh, almost 6,840 people have been detained so far as due to anti-war protesting. But just, oh just think about that. Think of how incredible your resolve must be. Think of how, how amazing of a, of a, of an ideology of, of a firm sense of right and wrong that you must have to protest like that against your own government, knowing that it will probably lead to you being arrested. So I think that we all need to look at the Russian people that are doing this as heroes. And yeah. that also brings us to the tip for good, which is kind of a reminder of a tip for good that we've done before, which is hate the government, not the people. Yeah. So oftentimes governments, they commit atrocities. We've talked about it in terms of Israel. We've talked about it in terms of Saudi Arabia, the United States, the United States. Yeah. And of course, Russia, it's important to note that not everybody in Russia agrees with the actions of Vladimir Putin, and we shouldn't be demonizing Russians, Russian civilians around the world. We should concentrate that ire on the people that are actually making the decisions, the government. All right. Vladimir Putin. So the main tip for good is that we need to recognize that there are many people in Russia that are not okay with what is going on mm -hmm. in Ukraine, that are not okay with the actions of Vladimir Putin. So save your hatred for Vladimir Putin and honestly celebrate the absolutely incredible bravery of all of these Russian citizens who have risked their own freedom to to demonstrate uh, to, to to demonstrate against the atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine right now. And that's tips for good actually. So for our second segment, we are talking about uh, the recent news of Biden announcing his official pick, to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the United States Supreme Court. Um, he selected from his panel of options, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, and that is very exciting news for us here on the, the Perspectrum. Yes, it is. Um, not the least of which is the fact that it uh, pisses off our favorite Southern Belle, Lindsey Graham. Because <laughs> if you will recall... He was really wanting Biden to nominate Childs, who was an anti-labor corporatist. And 
somewhere, Lindsey Graham is like, I do declare <laughs> they might allow unions. Yeah, Lindsey Graham. I don't case. like unions. <laughs> yeah, he's a funny case because he literally voted to confirm Jackson to the yeah. D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Yeah. And then last week he tweeted that uh, Jackson's selection meant, quote, the radical left has won President Biden over yet again. Trust me, Lindsey Graham, if the radical left had won President Biden over at any point, you'd know about it <laughs> <laughs> or we'd know about it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is an awesome pick. So yes. we've talked about her a little bit in the past. We did a survey of kind of the main options for President Biden uh, to select. Um, so and 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 she was one of them. Uh, but to reiterate some of that, so she was confirmed last year in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Um, it was a fifty-three to forty-four vote, which means that it was uh, fifty Democrats and three Republicans, and then. Uh, in favor, and then 44 uh, Republicans against, and then a few that abstained. Um, and, you know, that's that's consi- that Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. is considered, like, basically the second most powerful court in the land and often yeah. a feeder court to the Supreme Court. A lot of current and former uh, Supreme Court justices were picked from there. Um, and so she's 51 years old. Uh, which is like pretty young. It would make her the youngest uh, Supreme Court justice aside from Amy Coney Barrett, currently sitting. Um, and her background is freaking dope. Yeah, like so. I, I just I just want to impress upon you that I I feel like the left has had to make a lot of compromises, have had to look at people where we're just like, okay, well, you're the less shitty option or look at policies and be like, this is the less shitty option. But Katanji Brown Jackson is somebody where I honestly, I honestly expected while I was trying to look more into her record, I honestly expected to find something where I would be like, Ooh, but like the more I read about her, the more I was like, holy shit, she's a badass. Mm-hmm. The the more I was like, I am so glad that this woman is going to be on the Supreme Court. And look, yeah, you've listened to the Perspectrum. You know that we are not cheerleaders of Joe Biden. We don't just <laughs> defend Joe Biden for anything that he does. We're not cheerleaders of the Democratic Party. We're not. We're not hacks. We criticize them when we want to. This is a great pick. All right. I think and this mad, is a great pick. Mad credit to Biden for for this pick. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so one thing that really caught my eye that I just want to focus on, well, well, there are two main things, but the first one is, um, that she is a leading expert in federal sentencing policy Yes, and has spent, uh, years serving as vice chair of the U S uh, sentencing commission, which is amazing because her work has focused so much on sentencing reform yeah um which you know as we talk about the injustice system as we talk about uh you know do those segments like sentencing reform is a huge area of not only like complexity but also impact um yeah so in 2003 
she was working at you know a private practice law firm, pretty standard for out of law school, and decided to leave that job um, and spent two years as a staffer on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, um, which is you know a federal agency that writes guidelines to shape criminal sentencing in federal courts. Um, but then she decided that, you know what, that wasn't close enough to the action, that she, quote, lacked a practical understanding of the actual workings of the federal criminal justice system. And so she went and, quote, spent time serving in the trenches um, as a public defender. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. Um, there are so many issues with public the public defending system. We We did a whole injustice system about this how yeah. there there are some places like I, I think it was like in florida where some public defenders could research for like three minutes per um yeah per case, per case. Yeah. like the fact that there is somebody who has experience as a public defender knows the knows the ins and outs of of public defense and the flaws within yeah. the system of public defense on the supreme court is huge it's huge no sitting justice has a comparable background. Uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Sotomayor were all prosecutors, but there hasn't been a justice since Thurgood Marshall, uh, who was also a, a counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, who had worked representing poor and marginalized people charged with crimes. So she would be the first public defender and, and one of few that has actually been in the trenches defending and representing uh, disadvantaged people. Um, so like a former prosecutor might have, you know, insights into the criminal justice system, which is often a specialty that's lacking on the Supreme Court because many times it's their, you know, their appellate lawyers or, um, you know, not like criminal prosecutors or defendants but even if you're a, a prosecutor like you might have some vision into like what it's like being in a trial room and uh issues with the criminal justice system but as a public defender you have held a pretty unique position representing the least well-off people in a system that disadvantages not only them but also you as a public defender yeah um, um so then after that in 2010 uh, Barack Obama nominated Jackson to serve as vice chair of the sentencing commission. Um, and while she was on the commission, she retroactively reduced sentences for crack and cocaine offenses in 2011 and permitted 12,000 incarcerated individuals to seek reduced sentences, um, making an estimated 1800 inmates eligible for immediate release. Yeah. Um, and she also cut the sentencing for federal drug offenses during her last year uh, as a commissioner. Yeah. So I want to talk about that for just a second, because one of the one of the important things that I think is important to note is that there was a well-known disparity between the sentencing for crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Because crack cocaine tends to be used by black people and powder yeah. cocaine tends to be used by white people. And so the, the difference in sentencing was just flat out racism. It was about mm -hmm. finding excuses to lock black people up. And in fact, she actually had a relative 
a distant uncle named Thomas Brown, who was serving a life sentence on drug charges. Mm. And Katanji Brown Jackson um, was able to uh, was able to help give her uncle direction in to a, a different firm which was able to file for clemency for um, for her uncle, mm. which led to, in 2016, Barack Obama commuting his sentence. Now, mm. he was at the age of, of 78 years old, and he served in prison for 25 years. Wow. 25 years for drug charges. Now, this is what we mean when we say that representation matters. All right, a lot of, a lot of people scoff at, at uh, representation because, unfortunately... Sometimes uh, identity politics is weaponized by corporate interests in order to create the veneer of being progressive and liberal and woke without the actual changes made, without the actual structural changes made to actually matter. But this is a case where because of her experience as a public defender, as a black mm -hmm. woman, and as somebody who has had a family member who was whose life was destroyed by the ridiculous war on drugs, that is a perspective that needs to be on the Supreme Court. And it's because of her background and identity, even outside of the fact that she's ultra qualified in her professional career, in her personal yeah. life, she has, ex she has perspective that matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's the other side of the coin there. Like, Aside from her being like having the perspective that that you know brings a whole new lens to the Supreme Court that has literally never been there before. Yeah. Um, she her her qualifications are unimpeachable, yeah. which I think is a huge part of her draw as uh as um an appointee to the Supreme Court. She was like, you know, went to Harvard twice. <laughs> for undergrad and law school, like uh, is a justice on a feeder court to the Supreme Court. Like she is an unimpeachable uh, choice for the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and, and this is an interesting aspect of her record as well. So on the DC circuit um, and throughout her career, career, she has had a lot of experience wading through very technical complex um contentious issues right so she's like clearly a qualified jurist but very few of those have um involved like highly contentious political issues as well so you know she's like very comfortable winding her way through very complex statutes and and, and competing interests and things like that but she hasn't handed down significant decisions on race or abortion or health care, which on the one hand is a bit of a risk. Well, right? she, has like, represented, she has well, represented she has represented um, pro-abortion groups before, though. Yeah. As a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, but not as a justice. Yeah. But not as a jurist has she handed down a decision involving those things. Yeah. Um, which, like, yeah, to your point, like, that probably mutes the risk right yeah. because we know that she has represented those people um but it also is one of those things that like may make her a little bit immune to some republican challenges because yeah. they're not going to be able to say oh this person's just a a pro health care hack or anything like that 
because there really isn't, you know, much of anything to hold on to there. Um, yeah. And so as a result of like all of these things, right, she has garnered not only Democratic support, but the endorsement of a bunch of, you know, conservatives, specifically like conservative justices and lawyers. Yeah. Which, you know, if it, if it were not for her record and her clear, um, you know, liberal approach, that would make me a little bit nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the fact that like William Burke, who represented uh, Trump's former White House counsel, Don McGahn, and um, other former White House officials, the fact that he... Um, endorsed her i was like oh i don't know which which is interesting because she famously ruled against mcgann's attempt to um to to not testify in front of congress and she's she's actually the one that famously wrote the the thing about presidents are not kings in in Mm -hmm. her her report about that so i find it interesting that the person representing mcgann actually is in support (laughs) of her being on the court um Yeah, and he said, as a Republican, I hope Judge Jackson will garner substantial bipartisan support because she deserves to be judged on her personal marriage, which overwhelmingly weigh in favor of confirmation. Yeah. There is one area that I want to talk about that Republicans are going to attack her on, that it's going to be stupid, it's going to be ridiculous, but we do need to be prepared for it. Um, And that is the fact that she did represent as a public defender uh suspected terrorists at guantanamo bay now republicans are going to bring that up republicans so oh man of course they will (laughs) like republicans are going to bring that up and what's interesting so the washington post did a really uh fun breakdown of this an an op-ed piece where they were breaking down some of the criticisms of of how she uh defended her um, her, her clients. And then the article was pointing out the fact that she was literally just doing her job based on the wording of what her job is. So, so yeah. for example, the Republican national committee, um, said Jackson's quote, advocacy for these terrorists was zealous going beyond just giving them a competent defense, <laughs> which is hilarious. That is literally the definition of representation. You are required to mount a zealous defense yeah no no the dc bars rule the 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 dc bar um uh this rule about uh, professional conduct states quote a lawyer shall represent a client zealously and diligently within the bounds of the law that's literally in her job description i cannot believe oh my god i can't believe the republican national committee one pulled their language straight from her job description (laughs) like straight from like her ethical duty as a lawyer Two, like like what the fuck happened to um you know everybody having a right to a lawyer at trial like that that is like a relatively new right but a pretty important and fundamental one yeah Um, and two then three like what's their point like what are they trying to say she was they could be saying a couple things one they could be saying she's too good of a lawyer yeah. Right? She she was too good of a lawyer. We shouldn't have spent her on on terrorists, suspected terrorists. Or they could be saying, "Oh man, somehow she's like, you know, 
she's really supporting these terrorists. Uh, that's that's concerning. In which case, it's like, are you dumb? Yeah. Like, you wh- what you think that she's like pro terrorist? Like, yeah. In like how how would that? She's like would be the most successful sleeper agent of all time. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the 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 article also pointed out so the the site uh, Law Enforcement Today also accused her of being active and dedicated to uh, representing terror subjects or suspects, which again, the DC bar says, quote, a lawyer shall act with commitment and dedication to the interests of the client. <laughs> Literally their, their criticisms are taking the wording of her job description from the bar and using it as a criticism. Yeah. They're, they're like typing up their little, their little op-eds and they're like, Man, this language is really good. I feel like I've heard this somewhere before. (laughs) And also, let's point out a few things. Number one, public defenders don't always choose their clients. But number two... Almost, yeah. yeah. Number two, uh, the people in Guantanamo Bay were detained without due process. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, we don't know how many of them were actually guilty. Did you know that only 5% of the residents of Guantanamo Bay were captured by U.S. troops? That the rest of them were, they ended up there because of bounties paid to by police and military officials and residents of foreign countries. Basically, police officers, uh, foreign officials would just be like, hey, so uh, we got this guy. He's definitely a terrorist. Uh, Pay up. And apparently in some cases... Um, some of these, some of these people, some of these government officials were just like sending their political opponents and saying, yep, it's yeah. a terrorist, you know, definitely a terrorist right here. Oh my God. Um, according to documents published by WikiLeaks in uh, 2011, at least 150 prisoners were innocent, which is a fifth of the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay and 380 of them were low level foot soldiers that they knew according to Pentagon documents, posed very little threat. And these were people that were detained without trial, without due process. And you're complaining about the fact that she gave them representation after they had already been locked up without due process to, as, as an attempt to, to make sure that they were actually guilty. Like you were, you're, yeah. you're saying that people that were never found to be guilty because there was no due process that, that, that it, it's bad that she represented them. Have you read the constitution? Do you, do you, yeah. do you In know, the, yeah. do you know how to court? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like in it, two things, innocent until proven guilty and adversarial system of justice. Yes. The whole idea is that you do your best for your side and the other does, the other side does their best for their side. And hopefully we arrive at the truth. Yeah. That's the whole thing. That's why it has to be zealous advocacy for your client, and regardless again, of whether they're the defendant or the. Uh, and again, a lot of them were innocent. At least a fifth of them, they knew for a fact, were innocent. And the rest of them, I would, I would, I would argue that all of them that did not receive a fair trial, we don't know if any of them are guilty, because mm-hmm. they didn't get a fair trial. 
Look, yep. I, I, don't don't even try to accuse me of being pro-terrorist or, or or some shit like that. The point of the the point of the justice system is to make sure that the people that we actually lock up are the people that actually deserve to be locked up. If we don't put them through that system, then we undermine our entire justice system. Look, if you go through a trial and you find out that yes, they're terrorists, yes, they are targeting civilians, then lock them up, throw away the key. I don't give a fuck. All right, fuck them. But until we find out if they are if they are guilty. They need a fair trial. And she was representing them. So this was something that made me admire her more. And Republicans are going to try to use it as an excuse to, to delegitimize her nomination to claim that she is protecting terrorists or that she loves terrorists. And you know what? There's some racist assholes that are going to completely go along with it. And now it's time for our favorite segment. Asshat of the, of the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is another ass that keeps on hatting. Mm. It's Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert? Ooh. Lori Bo, come on down. <laughs> Lauren Boebert is so dumb. Come she on is so dumb. She mm -hmm. is so fucking dumb. <laughs> so what did Lauren Boebert do to get on our show? So you know how it is when... Um, you know, there's there's a father who is uh, giving a eulogy for their son, and you know, talking about the, the the their their dead son, and you always have that moment in the funeral where somebody just stands up and starts heckling them. You know, I've thankfully never experienced that moment. Yeah, really? Yeah. I, no, I haven't. That seems like something that. Is really terrible and uh, beyond us, Hattie. Yeah. So we're we're gonna, we're about to talk about the State of the Union address more mm -hmm. in depth. But oh my God, did Lauren Boebert not like? She did not time a heckle very well. Yeah. So she and Marjorie Taylor do a space lasers green. We're both heckling during the State of the Union, which like is poor taste. Is Poor taste. That's like not cool. Like the State yeah. of the Union is not. You get a chance for your rebuttal just because you wasted it on the governor of Iowa doesn't mean that you get to bring it up <laughs> during the State of the Union. Like, like this is a this is a global speech, right? Like, and like interrupting the president of the United States to interject your like opinions is not chill yeah. not cool and also especially like, not in this case well especially not in this case and also not when you're just being a fucking idiot so so biden was in the middle of talking about burn pits and um how his son might have who, who died of cancer could very well have died as a result of burn pits and this is actually a huge problem um, John Stewart actually did an entire uh, an entire show specifically about this and specifically about how the um, the the uh, the VA has not been giving victims of burn pits um, their like the the, the health care that they deserve because yeah. of like bullshit over oh but you can't prove that that you know your your cancer is the result of this exact thing um, but. But Lauren Boebert 
used the 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 time that that Biden was spending to talk about his dead son to just scream out you put them there 13 of them which is supposed to be a reference to uh the 13 troops killed um during the final days of the US withdrawal from Afghanistan which I would just like to point out if we were still there, there would be more dead U.S. troops. Yes. And look, look, we have we have criticized Joe Biden in Afghanistan mm-hmm. with regard to the sanctions that are currently on on the people of Afghanistan, the the, yep. the money that is frozen, that is starving the country and resulting mm-hmm. in famine. We've criticized him for that. But we've, one thing we've that, criticized him for how we got out of Afghanistan, right? Like we've criticized him for not being as prepared as maybe he should have been. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is getting out of Afghanistan was the right thing to do. Yep. And more troops would have died if we had stayed there. So, yep. the, and also Trump was planning on getting out of Afghanistan too. Mm-hmm. All right. Exactly. Let's, let's not forget about exactly. that. Trump was planning on getting out of Afghanistan too. Now he never did. But that was his position as well. And if if any of them, any of the people that supported Trump had any shred of intellectual honesty, they would have given Biden credit for the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Like, I'm, again, I'm not saying that you can't criticize some aspects of the way that it went. Yeah. But at the end of the day, more troops would be dead if we had not gotten out of Afghanistan. So it's such a stupid heckle and it's yeah. such a stupid time to bring it up. It's such and a what in poor like, taste. What kind of shit person brings that up when somebody is talking about their dead son? What mm-hmm. kind of piece of shit does that? Also, during a moment when what Biden was saying was talking about how we have to actually support our troops that we have put in harm's way after they're out of combat, right? Like actually provide healthcare like it is an un like that is a bipartisan thing to actually help fund the va to take care of the health of our veterans and she's like trying to make a cheap political yeah weak point yeah and look if you know if after this had happened she had just said hey it was it was poor timing i i was misunderstanding what he was talking about um i I do think that we need to hold him accountable for the 13 troops that died, but I do apologize for picking that time to do it. It was in poor taste. If she had done that, I would have been like, okay, fine, whatever. Like, but she doubled down on it. She doubled down on it later. Like, Mm. look, I'm not, I'm not decorum police when it comes to politics, but like, Jesus Christ. So congratulations to Lauren Boebert for once again, being our ass hat of of the week. week. So for our third segment, we are talking about Biden's very first State of the Union address as president. Yeah. Um, yeah. It went surprisingly well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I I did not know what to expect going into it. Yeah. I mean, I have become, in, in a lot of ways, I have become disillusioned by the Biden administration, mostly mm-hmm. because of the failure of Build Back Better. Um, and also, of course, you know, the, the atrocities in Yemen and, and Afghanistan. Um, but he went surprisingly populist. Yes. And 
I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think that, I think that some people are pointing out the fact that he, um, the, the fact that he's bringing up these, these policies that were involved in build back better. And he like, I don't know, he, he kind of changed the wording of build back better sure. to be like a, a totally new policy. Now, some people are pointing out that he's probably just saying that to score, you know, to score points that he doesn't actually expect it to pass. But I don't know because the state of the union is watched by a lot of people. And the mm. only thing that was standing between us and that stuff passing was Kirsten cinema and Joe Manchin. Yeah. And on a medium like that, where you're actually on stage talking to, to millions of people that could be the, the prime platform to then bring up, Hey, you two get your shit together yeah. and Hey voters get them to get their shit together. I mean, yeah. I'm just saying it, it might have actually been a rally for support of the, of the bill. Um, specifically targeted at Joe Manchin and cinema. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's going to be effective and I mean, I am trying to withhold my judgments as to, whether or not he was sincere in what he was yeah. saying until he, he passes it. And like, you know, if he doesn't pass it, I'll criticize him for it. If he does pass it, I'll praise him for it. But now, but since he's advocating it for it right now, meaning that he's actually taking steps to actually try to pass it, I'm willing to give him credit. Yeah. I got to say, like, I was actually very impressed by that whole section of the address when yeah. he was talking about inflation and he tied that to big build back better and he tied that to like an explanation for inflation that undermines Joe Manchin's and Kirsten Cinema's problems with build back better. Yeah. Like that was their big contention at the end after they negotiated the the bill down to the size of a pencil. Um their big problem was oh no it's now we're like in a, in an inflationary environment where we can't spend this money. And like I thought like each point he made was like c concise, convincing, and undermined that position. Like calling out that, like, you know, the inflation in the economy is caused by primarily supply chain impacts, right? Like when you've got a, 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 an employment economy that's humming along and people are actually like, there's actually wage growth, people are actually making money, but there's a supply chain shortage, right? that drives inflation and like the fact that he was like hey like i don't want to cut wages you guys don't want to cut wages right we want wages to be to grow so the whole idea of you know combating inflation then is to like get supplies to match that yeah. growth and it's like and so we talked about like you know that we should like focus on like building up America and investing in like American manufacturing, like all these very populist messages all kind of tied back to this point about inflation and basically saying that investment in the economy is not driving inflation. Yeah. Um, and, and investment in the economy is in fact the solution to inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Which undermines Joe Manchin's entire argument, entire objection for yeah. the delay. And, you know, let's be clear. The biggest driver of inflation is supply chain issues caused by COVID-19. That's just mm -hmm. a fact. All right. 
they you, you they can claim that the the checks have had and ha- have had an impact on it um but of course the even if we did accept that the the chip that the checks did have an effect on it which i'm i'm not even sure that i do yeah the argument then is well so then the solution is take that away from the american people and just let them starve which exactly. was basically what the republican response was yeah the basically <laughs> the republican response was yeah when we put so much like when we help people out too much in the economy like inflation goes up and then things are too expensive in the economy and it's like well that doesn't have to be the answer you know like raising wages can be part of the answer to economic growth and like it, he drew it all the way back to like his like some of his core talking points that he's been meant, that he's been talking about for a while about like growing the middle class and like recognizing that trickle down is like a defunct theory of the past yeah. and that like you know yeah. i did i yeah. did love how he called out the tax cuts for the rich i know his one and then got fucking booed. dig his one dig at trump yeah uh which yeah. you know that you know that a bunch of republicans are going to be like yeah. how dare he it is yeah. so out of form <laughs> for a for a president to criticize a former president yeah it's like excuse me Hello? Hello? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, you know they're like, going to do that. You know but they're like, going to do that. He made it also like super clear that like he's not here to rob Peter to pay Paul. Like he's, yeah. he, he was like, if you earn less than $400,000 a year, you're not going to pay any more in taxes. Yeah. And I loved his point about like, you know, the whole idea is to make the tax system more fair. Yeah. And he like made this like point, which I don't know if it's actually true, but claim that like you know if they did a blind ballot most people in the room republican or not would conclude that the tax system is not fair um and like and actually like supported that contention you know with with some information well keep in mind he actually does have personal relationships with the people in that chamber so i actually believe him when he says that yeah that's fair that's a good point yeah that's a good point i i mean look most if not all Republicans are corrupt in some way, at least elected Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that you can find a few here and there that are true believers. Um, I actually, <laughs> Marjorie actually, Taylor do a space laser yeah. green is a, is a true believer. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no. I think, I mean, I've said before, I think that she is one of the Republicans that's just not in on the joke. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's, but, she's, uh, she's not corrupt. She's just fucking insane. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You know, so, but, but I actually do think that there's a good possibility that most of the people on that chamber are smart enough to know that it's not equal. Now, yeah, a lot of them also like it that way. Sure. They don't want it to be equal. They don't want it to be, uh, to be fair because that's because they benefit directly from that. But no, I absolutely do believe him that he's probably had conversations with Republicans who have just been like, yep, I'm doing this for my donors. Yeah. I know that it's bullshit. Yeah, I and I'm I'm glad that he like actually. So a while ago, a few episodes ago, we talked about like Biden's successes in his like first year, right? Yeah. Um, and he did a pretty good job talking about those. Like to be he fair, did. like a lot of them, a lot of the economic successes were because his he started at essentially a trough, right? And yeah. even if you went back to like average pre-COVID times. That would be a huge benefit. But like talking about like adding six and a half million jobs to the economy, 
Um, now, to be fair, yeah. it's also let's also recognize that unemployment was extremely yep. high. Yeah. So it is. I mean, it is important to still give context. Like you can take credit for that, but you know, it, but only so much. But only so much because the reason why he added so many jobs is because there were so many people that were unemployed to begin with. So there were yep. more people that could work. Yeah, but without like a solid vaccination effort, like without like actually yeah. making those available and then without the promise of more treatments, more vaccines, more masks, like those jobs weren't guaranteed, right? Like you had to lay the fertile ground for them to come back. But to your point, like yeah, they like you can't take full credit for that, of course. But then but then talking about like reducing the deficit yeah. um by a trillion dollars, like he, it was really interesting the way that he wove together like some typical Republican and Democrat talking points to this, to weave this very populist appealing message that was like, don't listen to like, you don't need to listen to either of these groups. Just listen to like what I'm telling you. And like, it's all stuff I know you want to hear, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, if this State of the Union address is able to rally support for these policies in order to put pressure on on uh, cinema and mansion, mm -hmm. that could be big. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Yeah, I am very pessimistic when it comes to the Biden administration, but it could. Yeah, and it looked like he was trying, and yeah. I think that's still important. I mean. I mean, there's only so much he can do, right? This is one of the levers yeah. that he has. Yeah, that's absolutely you know? true. And can we talk about the Republican response for a second? Oh, my God. It was, was hilarious. Just it was laughable. hilarious. So first off, I lived in Iowa, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, I, I, person, I, this, I do uh, know this. Kim I do Reynolds. know this. Yeah, Kim Reynolds. She, I, I remember when she, uh, she got reelected, and I was like, oh... Great. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Cause, cause she was actually at the time it was, um, I think five thirty eight was actually given it to the Democrat. So hmm. it was, it was really disappointing. A, yeah. That's a surprise. But, um, it's 2016 all over again. But yeah. And <laughs> incredibly anti-labor, which, you know, is, is funny for, for Typical. Iowa. Cause it's a very, it's a very pro labor state, but they still yeah. elect Republicans like her. Mm -hmm. Um, her COVID response. I, 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 I have a lot of friends that still live in Iowa Mm -hmm. Um, some who actually, uh, uh, uh work in healthcare mm -hmm. and man, has she been hurting them? Like man yeah. has heard, mm -hmm. uh, lifting of restrictions, um, her refusal to implement certain restrictions, man, has that hurting been hurting the people in Iowa? Like mm -hmm. I, I mean, we, we, we talked to, we talked to Kyle about it. Yeah. Kyle, he, yep. he, he works in Iowa. He works, he, in Iowa, yeah. he works in Iowa. Um, a lot of that, a lot of the. Uh, influx of of hospitals like his has a lot to do with the failed policies of Kim Reynolds. So, I mean, she's already a a terrible freaking like she, she's already a a horrific disaster of a politician. Yeah, but also not a good speaker. Not, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like like it was funny because like she clearly wrote that in advance. Like it wasn't yeah. like it was like it wasn't like it was like a high pressure off the cuff thing. It was like anyone can rub the the two cells of their brain together yeah to get like a good speech if they're supported by a whole room of staffers which i'm sure yeah. she was like why did she do such a bad job 
I mean, first off, she she said some things that were just flat out false, like many, flat out many. lies. Like yeah. at one point, she she went on this rant about how um the 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 people of America do not want to all of this big government spending because it is robbing their children's futures. They don't want this. It's like that's so she's talking about build back better, and mm -hmm. that's a total fucking lie. Yeah, pull every single. Look at all, look at the polls on the provisions of Build Back Better. They're overwhelmingly popular, and it's mm -hmm. not robbing children. It's making sure that they actually have a future through things like um, expanding yeah. the uh, the child tax credit, so they actually have some more money. Um, it's about uh, uh, child care. It's about mm -hmm. universal pre K, which people yeah. obviously want. It's and literally need. investing in children. It's literally investing in children. So. The fact, you know, her saying that that's not popular is just a flat out lie. It's just not true. Like, objectively, it's not true. I was blown away as I reflected on her speech afterwards at how little evidence or information it had. It was yeah. literally just rhetorical points, half of which were the same points that Biden was making. Yes. Like, they were like, they were like, it was a huge amount of overlap. And it was just like, it was like Biden was saying like, yep, we're going to do this. And like, we're working on this and this is how we're going to get it done. And she was like, and the limo liberal Democrats don't want to get it done and they can't get it done. It's like, it's like we, we just said, we, <laughs> we just, just said, said we're uh, going to, that's, I mean, <laughs> I mean, she, she made the, she made this stupid point about, um, like people are required to have a vaccine to work, but illegal immigrants I know that's just a yeah. flat out lie. We it's we actually lie. Yeah, we, we broke that down. That. We talked about I know. that. I literally I was sitting next to Brian. I literally said, "That's not true. That's <laughs> fake." <laughs> we we did a whole segment about that. So yeah. it is true that the initial place where some of these people who are let in are detained don't have a vaccine mandate, but they are mm -hmm. sent. But from that location, they are sent to other places where there is a vaccine mandate. And yep. in fact, um. Immigrants who have been detained at the border have a higher vaccination rate than like regular American citizens. And yeah. they're even more heavily bedded. We know more about their COVID status than we do about mm -hmm. natural born citizens. So it's just a flat out lie. It's just not true. Yeah. All right. And then she brought up fucking critical race theory, <laughs> like and, and school choice, which mm -hmm. Biden didn't even talk about. He's never talked about that. Why are you even bringing that. it up? He well, has never like, talked about it. Yeah, it's because they know that is it's not a, it's not actually a response to Biden, you know, like it's not yeah, a rebuttal. It's really. not. It's actually just talking points. It's just the Republicans' attempt at a state of the union. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like, do you? I love the moment where she blamed Biden for Russia invading Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> what? She was like, what? she was like, uh, like Putin would never have invaded Ukraine if we weren't so weak with our political correctness and stuff. really that's that's yeah yeah that's your that's your big theory <laughs> of like, the yeah, case so, there huh so because so because i try to use people's pronouns correctly putin decided i'm gonna go this is the time <laughs> this is the time to take ukraine <laughs> like, <laughs> like what an idiot yeah what I a know. dumb and she claimed dumb that message. biden was trying the biden administration was trying to give tax breaks to the wealthy in what like, world also Trump already did that. <laughs> Trump did that, and you supported it. And it was, yeah, it was like, what? Trump did that, and you supported it. 
Yeah. Like Biden is in favor of raising taxes on the rich. The only reason why taxes haven't been raised on raised on the rich yet is because of Manch, of Mansion and Cinema, which, which yeah. by the way, she brought up the fact that it was a it was a failed agenda because it was too extreme for two members of his own party. All right. Yep. That that she she brought that up. It's like yep, if that that's passed, a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Biden was making passed, the same point. <laughs> If it had passed, it would have raised taxes on the rich. <laughs> God, it was it was hilariously incompetent. Um, and I mean, who even listens to the response? Maybe just us. Maybe just <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like I feel like watching that. I felt like I was the only person watching who knew who Kim Reynolds was. I had no idea. I I don't I don't really understand the strategy into like selecting who gives the response or they I mean, wrote the rebuttal. I mean, I I remember it was it like, like a weird choice. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it is, but man, it was it was bad. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to watch it, but uh, the um, the working families party, yeah, also did a response, and it was uh, it was Rashida Talib who, who yeah, did I saw it. that they did a response. It was running at the same time as the rebuttal, though, so I didn't yeah. get to catch it. Yeah, I, I I I I got a chance to watch it, and I mean, it's Rashida Talib being mm-hmm. Rashida Talib, and Rashida Talib is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, and and. You know, she she pointed out some of the limitations of the Biden administration. She was critical of the Biden administration. She pointed out the fact that uh, if Biden wanted to, he could eliminate student debt with the stroke of a pen. Yeah, um, which he definitely shied away from. He definitely shied away from. Um, she pointed out the fact that um, you know, she, she spent a lot of time talking about uh, Republicans' attempts at overturning elections at their attempts mm. at um at preventing people from voting at yeah. uh at voter suppression which you know i think was important uh, the thing is a lot she echoed a lot of the sentiments that biden made but kind of called him out for not being as sincere and not doing as n- enough to actually fulfill mm-hmm. them which yeah. i like you know yeah i like um that no one probably watched sense. it but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like, I think that makes sense. Like it was super clear when you think about what Biden said on like at the podium relative to like the agenda that he laid out heading into his administration. Yeah. That like there were some things that just kind of fell off the map. Yeah. I mean, what happened to a public option? Yeah. I mean, not, that... not a single mention. And that was the compromise. Yeah. Public option was the compromise. So, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like, it doesn't surprise me that that happened because, well, for two reasons. One, because we pretty much predicted that it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, all, but the Not second reason horn. is because, like, his, the, his theory of the speech, like, his whole thing was like, I'm going to name, I'm going to talk about things that are just unimpeachably popular to, the center third yeah you know like the like the less conservative republicans the less liberal democrats and like independents and folks like that and i'm just gonna talk i'm just gonna make a plan propose a plan that like really gets at that group and like does nothing to piss them off 
Yeah. You know? Well, but it is still popular among leftists. I mean, we want him to go sure. farther, of course, but um, but a lot of the reforms that he brought up are things that would really impact America, really impact... Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, really, and really excite leftists. I mean, if he... Here, here's what I would say. My, my, my final kind of analysis of this is if he is able to get even half of what he promised in that speech, half of what he was advocating in that speech, um, actually accomplished, yeah, that'd be amazing. then that would be amazing. And Democrats will win in midterms. If he can get even half of that accomplished problem is I kind of doubt he will. Yeah. Prove me wrong. Please. And now we will end our show as we usually do uh, with our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight this week has actually been a highlight that has that I have not talked about yet. Ooh. And it is a very exciting highlight. It was it would have been my highlight last week, but I wasn't sure if it was if it was okay if I was public about this. I've been told that it's okay for me for me to be public about this now. Um, I have I have been promoted. Um, I have I have received a more permanent full time position at my university um, as the assistant director of its speech team, and. Amazing. I, I, I was on a one-year contract for, for, for this cement, for this year, and now I'm on permanently. So I, I officially have stable employment, and it's, it's at the, the university that I went to. It's, at, uh, it's with uh, the speech team that I love. It's with the speech team that I competed on for, for four years. It is a dream job for me, and mm -hmm. I am so freaking happy that I got it. I am so proud, dude. I am so proud. I know I've hard how hard you've worked towards this for a long time, and uh, I'm so excited for you, and I'm so excited for Jess and you both, and and what it means for you in the future. Thanks, bro. Yeah, man. And thanks, thanks for supporting me along the way, bro. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. I've got to say, like, I was gonna come on here and talk about my highlight being like my week of skiing last <laughs> week which was very fun. But honestly, I think my highlight is just your highlight, man. It's just so, it's <laughs> oh. such exciting, great news. I'm so happy for you. Dude, thank you so much. I, I, I love you, bro. I love you too, buddy. All right. And now we will thank our patrons who are faultlessly uh, supporting us all this time and helping us do what we do. So thank you to Taylor Bloom, uh, Jerry DeViller, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, and Tobias Jansen. And now, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.